Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Grab a Bible, phone, iPad, manuscript, whatever it is you use. Going to Mark 14. Goodness. Mark 14. I'm going to do go 22 to 26, right? Mark 14, 22 to 26. And this this is the last in a in a, in a series within a series about the Passover. Okay, we had um, you know preparations for the Passover, prediction at the Passover, and, and we're going to introduce a new practice at the Passover. So this is the last in this series within our series on Mark. And we know this follows, of course, the prediction of his betrayal. And we know that Jesus continues to teach and really surprise his disciples. I mean, you know, he just, he keeps pulling stuff out. It's like, oh, well, that's new. That's different. And I'm going to ask you one last time, just like I did two weeks ago and last week, Mark Psalm 118, because we're going to refer to Psalm 118 just for part of this and, and several verses within it. So I don't, I don't know if you like bookmarks or fingers or, you know, if you just want to flip there or if you just want to ignore it, 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 I guess it doesn't matter. But I'm just saying if you want to, you can go to also Psalm 118. So new practice at the Passover, and, and really just three things. We're going to look at write, R-I-T-E, and then we're going to look at rewrite, and then we'll just close out with remembrance. So write, rewrite, remembrance. So Mark 14, 22 to 26, we'll, we'll read that. It says, while they were eating, he, Jesus, took some bread. After blessing, he broke it, gave it to him, and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So after singing a hymn, they went out to the mount of olives. I, uh, I came across a quote from Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson said this. He said, in these words, and he was actually, he was actually referring to the Matthew account of the Lord's Supper, but he says, in these words, we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. He said, the Greeks call the sacrament a mystery, and there is in it a mystery of wonder and a mystery of mercy. And then he goes on and he quotes Chrysostom. And he says, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, says Christosom, is the commemoration of the greatest blessing that ever the world enjoyed. Watson continues, he says, a sacrament is a visible sermon. The word, and, and I like this phrase, the word is a trumpet to proclaim Christ. The sacrament is a glass to represent him. The word is a trumpet to proclaim Christ. The sacrament, a glass to represent him. So the first thing we want to look at is the rites that are involved. And I, I put up there the A part of verse 22, and, and 
we're, we're skipping around just a little bit, and you'll see why, but verse 26, so verse 22a and 26, because we know that every element of the Passover had significance. There was nothing arbitrary, they all had significance. So as each part of the meal was eaten, and we've talked about this, well, the host took time to explain the symbolism and the spiritual importance, okay, with, with every part of the meal. Well, the, the, the first thing we see are, are the symbols. The symbols, and, and, I, and I put all of them up there, or at least most of them, because they had bitter herbs. What did the bitter herbs do? They reminded them of their bondage as slaves in Egypt. One of the representations of wine was God's fellowship with the believer in the midst of trial. The stewed fruit, which was, now this sounds pretty appetizing, I know. It was the color and consistency of clay. Mmm. Yeah, stewed fruit. But it reminded them, this is, this is cool, of the bricks that they had been forced to make when they were in bondage. We know the unleavened bread represented both separation from evil and haste. Right? Remember, they ate it with their sandals on and their walking sticks close by. And the roasted lamb represented re- redemption. So we had these symbols, but then, but then we also know that they, they sang the Hallels. Okay, the Hallel Psalms, 113 through 118 at different times. And, and so they, they were either sung or chanted antiphonally, like we do with the responsive reading, in connection with the Passover. We know that the first two, 113 and 14, always came after the second cup. And then the, the remaining four came toward the end of the meal. So it was 115 through 18. Now here's why I want you to go to Psalm 118. Because think about, think about this, right? We'll look at these verses in Psalm 118. But this is going to be a psalm that they, were, they would have sung or, or recited antiphonally during this meal. Jesus and the disciples would have done the same thing. So look at Psalm 118. And here are some things that they would have chanted or sung. Verse 1, of course, says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Verse 6 and 7 says, The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Verse 17 and 18, I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Verse 22 through 24, The stone which the builders ejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And then the psalm would close with verse 29, Give thanks to the Lord, He is good, His loving kindness is everlasting. But can you imagine, remember, Jesus is, is, is taking part of this. He's singing this or chanting these same words, and He's saying, the Lord is for me among those who help me, therefore I'm going to look with favor among those who hate me. What was He hours from? Well, we know He was hours from being tormented and scourged and crucified. It says, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. And then, of course, the famous passage in 22, that stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So just thinking about those verses in context and in light of what was going on and what was going to happen just resonated so much more with me and, and it, it gained added significance because Jesus is singing these things before His suffering and His death. 
He is singing them before his suffering and death. And again, it's one of those times, too, when, when I just have to wonder, like with so many things with Jesus and the disciples, you know, after they were through, you know, after they got a few weeks down the road or you know, a few months down the road or a couple years down the road, how many of these things would come back and, and you know, just light bulbs would go off with these guys? And maybe even within a week, you know, after he appeared again and, and he said, oh, yeah, we were just, we, the last time we saw you in this room, we were eating and singing and, and then and now. Oh, I understand a little bit, Lord. So the, these, are, these are the rites they would have observed. But before they get to the songs, and that's why I said we're, we're jumping around, but before they get to the Hallel's, Jesus comes along and he gives them some new symbols. So he rewrites things for them. In verse 22, the, the latter part of 22 through 25. And we see so often as, as he does, Jesus takes ordinary things and he does something extraordinary with them. Well, the first thing he does is he takes bread. There in verse 22, the, the B part, he says he took some bread and after blessing, he broke it, gave it, and said, Take it, this is my body. Now, this is kind of interesting to think about, too, and, and you guys are smart. You probably, you probably all know this, but you know, 33 years earlier, in a town called Bethlehem, well, Bethlehem means what? House of bread. The bread of life took on a human body. So coming from the house of bread... The bread of life took on life and took on a human body. And everything Jesus did, he did in that body. He lived, he preached, he worked miracles, he taught. He would die, be buried, and he'd rise again in that body. And so we have several things related to this idea of bread. First of all, we have what I call a twofold mystery. Because it says Jesus took the bread. He took it and he separated the bread from the common use. And, and I think it signifies a couple things. First, first that God in His eternal decree set Christ apart for the work of our redemption. He, he was separate. Hebrews 7.26 says He was separate from sinners. So he, he set Him apart. But then second, setting these things apart from the common elements shows us something important. It shows us that He is not, and understand this, He is not for the common person that is, someone who isn't outwardly separate and inwardly sanctified by the Spirit. Okay, He is set apart. We are set apart. And we ask, ask okay, well, you know, why bread? Of all things, why bread? Be, because of the types that are represented. It, it, it is typified in some different ways. In fact, we understand that, that it prefigured Christ. We know that in 1 Kings 7.48, Christ was typified by the showbread. And in Genesis 14.18, he was typified in the bread that was offered to Abraham by Melchizedek. And over in 1 Kings 19.6, Christ was typified by the cake the angel brought to Elijah as what? As the bread of life. So it prefigured Christ. And I think it's great because bread has some interesting properties when you just get really basic about it. Remember me, I'm, I'm a very basic, very simple person. I like simple. 
So, so as the bread of life, John 6, 48 tells us, you know, Jesus is the bread of life. So as the bread of life, there are similarities between Jesus and, and bread. Well, it, that's kind of logical. You think, well, duh, Pastor Kevin. Well, it is. It's kind of, but think about this, because bread, bread is what? Bread is useful. You know, if, if uh, I don't know, try existing without, I mean, if that's all you have to eat, try existing without bread. There, there's, there's no subsisting without it. There's no subsisting without Christ. Partaking of him gives what? John 6, 57 says, partaking of him gives life. Bread's useful. Bread is satisfying. You know, if you're hungry and someone shows you a nice picture, does that take care of it? No. If you're hungry and someone plays you a nice song, I'm hungry, well, let me play a song for you. That's not going to help me. No. Those don't satisfy Christ satisfies. He satisfies the eye with beauty, the heart with sweetness, the conscience with peace. So bread's useful. Bread's satisfying. Bread is strengthening. In fact, Psalm 104.15 says, Bread which strengthens man's heart. What does Christ do? He transmits strength and supports us against temptations and, and for doing, working, and even suffering. Okay, he, he gives us strength in our trials, and He gives us strength in our temptations, and He gives us strength in our working. And it says, even as He has suffered, He was still thankful. Because it says, He took the bread, and He gave thanks. It says, after a blessing, He gave thanks that God the Father had in the infinite riches of His grace, given His Son to expiate the sins of the world. And again, think about this. If Jesus broke the bread and thanked God for it, understanding what was coming, if He gave thanks for what was to come, how much more, how much more should we who have these signs and seals of our redemption, be thankful. I mean, Christ was thankful, and he knew where he was going. How much more should we be thankful? He knew he was going to suffer. He knew that there was torment coming. Because again, he foreshadowed it. It said he broke the bread. He broke the bread. It foreshadowed his death and passion with all the, the torments of his body and soul. And this is, this is something to wrestle with. Isaiah 53.10 said, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now this is kind of interesting also. We know when, when, when spices are, are bruised, they produce a sweet aroma. When, when spices, you know, when, when you crush them or bruise them or do things to them, they produce a sweet aroma. Symbolically, when Christ was bruised on the cross, he swent, sent out a sweet fragrance. And, and the crucifying of his body was the breaking open of a box of precious ointment which filled heaven and earth with its perfume. Think about that analogy in, in terms of the what? Of the alabaster box, the alabaster vial that was broken just about two days before. It was broken and spilled out, and the, the aroma, because it all came out at one time, the, that, that fragrance filled the room. So the breaking 
fill heaven and earth with its perfume. So we understand there was a mystery and, and there's some typification and he gave thanks and he foreshadowed it in his torment in, in breaking it. But then he said, take it. He, he, he gave it and says, take this and eat it. And we need to understand that the, the words are, are permissive, but they're also authoritative. He didn't say, take, eat, if you feel like it. Or, you know, would you please do this when you have time? No, it says he broke the bread and he gave it and he said, take this. And it's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. He says, take this and eat it. It's the same language we find over 1 Corinthians 11, 28. It says a man must examine himself and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's an imperative. Okay, you, you are to be doing these things. The, the language is really, it's, it's almost of a king saying, saying it this way. It's almost like a king saying, let it be enacted. Let it be done. Okay? Let it be enacted. We are compelled and commanded to partake and remember the king's command. Remember the king of kings. He says, take this. And we understand, at least we understand a little bit of its true worth, I think. Because it's, it's a royal, holy offering to us. And, and so it should be highly esteemed. Okay, it's a royal, holy offering that should be highly esteemed. Now we understand, in, especially traditionally in, in, in the eyes of, of you know, the, the disciples and, and Jewish people, you know, when they thought about bread, what, what's something that came to their mind? I mean, they, they, they automatically, you, you have to, they thought of manna. And especially when they thought about bread of life or bread from heaven or things like that. Well, they, they would think about manna. And, and so, you know, you think about contrasting Christ with manna. Because manna is what? It's another symbol. It's another typification of Christ's body. But, but we know that manna was sweet. Exodus 16, 31 said, said it was sweet. Well, we know that Christ is sweet to a believer's soul. But we also know that manna was food. It wasn't medicine. But we know that Malachi 4.2 tells us that, that Christ has healing under his wings. We also know that manna was corruptible. And manna ceased when they entered Canaan. But we know that, that he will never cease. And our souls will take infinite delight in him. Infinite delight. So there's all this symbology in the bread the types and the thanks and the torment and the worth and so so christ does all these and you think boy that's all it said in this was he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he told him to take it but we understand there, there is so much more there's so much more depth and there there's so many more layers just to that but we understand he distributes the bread and then he takes the cup. Then he takes the cup. Verse 23 through 25 tells about the cup. And Matthew 26, 28 adds this to it. Because it says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then, then Matthew adds this little phrase, but we understand it contextually from the whole thing. But he says, For forgiveness of sins. So we have the cup. Well, what was the cup? All right, well, assuming 
that, that they followed the established Passover ritual, which I'm thinking they, they probably did. Wasn't there. You know, I wasn't the guy who did the painting. You know, he would know. Um, but we're assuming that they followed that ritual. This would have been the third of four prescribed cups of wine. This would have been the cup of thanksgiving. Okay? This would have been the cup of thanksgiving, which again, I mean, that's kind of huge in itself. And the cup of thanksgiving com- concluded the main portion of the meal. Now, also presumably, we understand they didn't drink the fourth cup because the fourth cup was a cup of consummation. And, and so its significance with this would lie in the future when, when Jesus and his followers would be reunited and we get reunited again in his kingdom and fellowship. So again, we understand this is the cup of thanksgiving, the third cup in the ritual. Well, whose who's cup? Jesus clarifies for him. He says, this is my blood. And then he explains the representation of his blood. Now, the first thing, really, I want to point out is just, just the violence associated with the cup. Because we understand the wine in the cup was produced through violence, not violence, you know, like um, you know, one of those TV shows. We understand that. But, but think about this. You know, grapes are, are picked and they're crushed underfoot, right, to extract juice. Well, Jesus was about to be crushed by the full weight of religious Israel and the might of Rome. And, and, and they would combine forces to see him dead. And, and more importantly, he was about to be crushed by his own father. So whose blood? It, it, he says, it's my blood, and, and it's not going to be a pleasant thing. But we have to notice the, the high value of Christ's blood. And I just put up, I put up seven rare supernatural virtues of Christ's blood, for, for lack of a better term. Okay, seven things about the blood of Christ. Because the blood of Christ causes reconciliation. Colossians 1.21 says, You that were sometime alienated and enemies, yet now has he reconciled through death. See, it's not just a sacrifice, but 1 John 2, 2 says it's also a propitiation that brings us into favor with God. It's, it's one thing, now understand this, it's one thing to be pardoned. It's one thing to be pardoned. It's one thing to be a criminal and be set free. It's another to not only be pardoned, but be brought into favor. To be brought into favor. Like being, being you know, pardoned and then being you know, put into a position of esteem and honor and prestige and power. So it's one thing to be pardoned, but it says we were brought into favor. I have a quote. I think this might be from Watson also. But it says, Only Christ's blood ingratiates us into God's favor and makes Him look upon us with a smiling aspect. I like that language. When Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent. This was not without a mystery to show that through Christ's blood, the veil of our sins is rent, which interposed between God and us. We know it causes reconciliation. We also know John 6, 54 says it quickens us. It says, He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Christ's blood has an elevating power that that, that puts vivacity into us. So it causes reconciliation. It quickens us. We know it cleanses us. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience? 
1 John 1, 7 says it washes a crimson sinner white. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. We know the Word of God is a looking glass to show us our spots. And the, and the blood of Christ is a fountain. Zechariah 13, 1 talks about the blood of Christ is a fountain to wash them away. But we also understand it, it, it won't wash away if it's mingled with anything else. That is, you can't mix the blood of Christ with personal merit or works or righteousness or experience or, or anything else. It doesn't work that way. That becomes, in fact, Hebrews 10.29, it says that, that becomes an insult to him. It says, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So we know it cleanses us. We know that it compels softening. It, it softens a heart of stone and, and turns it into a spring. The heart becomes soft and, and, and waters of repentance flow from that softened heart. It cools the heart. First of all, it, it cools the heart of sin that, that, that burns in lust and passion and, and you know, self-absorption. It quenches the inflammation of sin, but it also cools the heart of conscience, which burns with God's displeasure. His blood cools and pacifies like a, like a refreshing river of water in a dry place. You know, like Isaiah 32 two talks about this, you know, cool water coming along in, in a dry, barren land. So it cools the heart. It comforts the soul. When we're afflicted, when we're burdened, when we're afraid, his blood makes a prison, a palace. His makes, blood makes a valley of victory. It brings hope to a hard place. And finally, it claims heaven. You see, just, just like Israel passed through, what, the Red Sea to get to Canaan. Well, so we, through the, the Red Sea of Christ's blood, enter into a heavenly Canaan. And we do it with boldness. Hebrews 10.19 says, Having boldness, therefore, to enter into the holiest, to enter into the holiness. How? By the blood of Jesus. So we understand whose blood it is and, and the value, the virtue there. But there's also a why. We understand the cup, and he, and he explains this. We understand the cup is figurative. And really, there are three things here. First of all, we see there's a covenant. Okay? This is my blood of the covenant. And we understand that in God's eyes, it's not changeable. Okay? In fact, the, the word used refers to an arrangement established by one party that cannot be altered by the other party. So, so God established the covenant, covenant and no one else can change it. It's unalterable. We also know though, that it's new because in the Old Testament, back in Exodus 24, 8, God, God gave them the system of sacrificing animals all right, for sins. But we also know that that process was repetitive. It had to be repeated you know, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. It was ongoing. So, how, so, so Jesus comes along and he institutes this new agreement between mankind and God where he would die in the place of sinners. So, so we know this old covenant was what? It was another shadow of the new covenant pointing forward to the day when Jesus himself coming along would be the final and the ultimate sacrifice for sin as that perfect lamb, as that sinless sacrifice once 
and for all without daily repetition, weekly repetition, monthly repetition, without more shedding of blood. So we understand this idea of a new covenant. He says this is a new covenant written in my blood. But he says, but it comes at cost. It comes at a cost. Because we understand his sacrifice involved the pouring out of his lifeblood, of his being, as Isaiah 53, 5 says, pierced for us. So that what? God would be satisfied. Romans 3, 25 and 26 says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we know that the new covenant came with great cost, but that it brought what? It brought cleansing. And it says cleansing for many, which is poured out for many. Notice it doesn't say all. In fact, I have this quote. He says, Not for all, lest his pouring out be in vain for the wicked destined for hell. Christ is given to the wicked, wicked in wrath, a rock of offense. His blood, like chemical drops of oil, which recover some patients, but kill others. He says, It's poured out for the ones that his Father gave to him, just like John 17, 9 says. Jesus is talking to his Father. He says, I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. So we know the cleansing was for many, and we know it involved mercy. In fact, it involved mercy of the greatest magnitude, a crowning blessing. Psalm 103, 3 captures it this way. He says, Who pardons all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Or Psalm 32, 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Covered how? By the blood. Whose blood? The blood of Jesus. Covers it all. That's great mercy. So the why is for the covenant, but it comes at grace cost, and it brings cleansing. But then we even, excuse me, we understand under this phrase, remission of sin, it's comprehended all heavenly benediction, justification, adoption, and glory. And in respect of, of which benefits we may call the Lord's Supper, is a, or as one commentator put it, the, the Feast of the Cross. But then we also see in Mark, Jesus kind of gives him a, a, he gives him a where. Because he says, I'm not going to drink the cup again until... Well, he gives them a where. When I drink it new. And, and we know that although the, these next few hours are going to bring what looks like defeat, looks like horrible loss, he was assuring them of his imminent victory and his victory over death and the grave and everything else. And he was assuring them of his shared fellowship with them in his new kingdom. Now, I'm thinking... when he was crucified and when they were heartbroken and crushed and, and depressed and everything else, I'm thinking they forgot that part. Because he even said, said I'm going to drink this cup again with you. I think they missed that. I can't blame them. 
I mean, if my close friend and, and master had endured what he had endured, there's probably a lot I would forget. Until I saw him again and, and some of those things maybe started coming back. Oh, yeah! You foreshadowed this. You talked about this. You represented this. You gave this to us. You, you told us this. In fact, you told us this a few times. I, I, I get it. A little bit of it now. But, but what does he do? He then goes on after the bread and the cup. He admonishes them to remember all of this. So we have this last section called remembrance. Now I know some of you are thinking, well, Mark doesn't put remember in there. I know. That's why we have synoptic gospels and, and, and that's why we have all of Scripture. Because to complete the picture, I, I think it's beneficial and it's critical to, to just consult Luke and Paul. Because we need to understand the important aspects of our remembering. So, in fact, I put Luke 22, 19, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 26. Because we know that for whatever reason, Mark didn't include this, but thankfully, the other guys did. So we put it together and we get the whole, we get the whole package. So, so what are the important aspects of our remembering? Well, first we see that this idea of habit. Okay, this idea of habit. In fact, understanding Paul and the context of where he's writing, you know, as we know from the church in Corinth, they had problems. They had problems. In fact, I, um, I heard one commentator one time, or not heard, I read one commentator who uh, he was trying to make a case for Paul's thorn in the flesh being a couple of people at Corinth and, and not some kind of physical infirmity just, just because, I mean, they were, they were, they were a pest. They were a burden. They, they were, they were very thorny, if not his thorn in the flesh. But Corinth, we, know, we understand Corinth had problems. And we know that when it came to the Lord's Supper, that a lot of them were, were in the habit of not treating the sacred meal the right way. We know there was gluttony, and there was drunkenness, and there was division, and there was improper behavior, and there was all kinds of things going on around the Lord's Supper. And Paul said, look, it's affecting you physically. He says, this is why, and he gives them a list, it's affecting you physically, but it's coming from a spiritual condition. He says, your habits are just an outpouring of things from your, well, we know this, from your heart. He said, so important aspects of remembering have to do with the heart. And that's why Paul writes about making sure you have the, the right attitude toward the Lord's Supper and preparing yourself and examining yourself. So how can we prepare our hearts? When we prepare to see the Lord's Supper, it, it does, it, it involves preparing our hearts in many ways. And I think we need to come, and I, and I, have, I have 12 different things here about our hearts. But I think we need to come, first of all, with hearts that are self-examining. Hearts that are self-examining. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. In fact, the Greek word to examine, this is, this is kind of cool. The word to examine is a metaphor taken from a goldsmith. Okay, from a goldsmith who, who curiously and cautiously tries all of his metals. What's he looking for? He's looking for flaws, blemishes, things that don't belong. So before we come to to the table, we're to make a curious and critical trial of ourselves by the word. So we have self-examining hearts. We're, we're to come with serious hearts. With serious hearts. Well, why would you say that? Well, 
because some people don't take it seriously. Some people just treat it as another, well, yeah, I'm going to get my little cup of juice and my little wafer thing, and okay, can we move on? Because, you know, it's almost 12. He says, no, you need to come with serious hearts, not lightly. Not like, uh, not like the, the guy who wasn't dressed right for the king's feast over in Matthew 22, 11. He says, hey, take him out. He doesn't need to be here. We need to come with serious hearts. We need to come with understanding hearts, simply having a, a measure of understanding about the sacrament. I mean, don't, don't just take it because someone's passing something by your way. We, have a, we need to have a measure of understanding. understanding. What, what is the bread? What does it represent? What is the cup? What does it represent? Why? Why is that important? What's the significance? So we need to have some understanding. We need to have a longing heart. I love him over in Luke twenty two fifteen because Jesus is talking to him. And it says, he said to him, I have earnestly desired... I have longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He was talking to his closest friends, and he says, I have longed to do this. I have longed to share this with you. We need to have a longing heart. It reminds me of uh, 2 Samuel 23. David longed for the waters of Bethlehem. So we should long for Christ in this. Number five, we should come with a penitent heart. You see, a, a broken Christ should be received with a broken heart. We that have sinned with Peter, how have we betrayed him? We betrayed in different ways. We that have sinned with Peter should weep with Peter. One guy put it this way, he said, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we will taste in Christ. So we need to come with penitent hearts. We need to come with sincere hearts. What, what's your goal with communion? What do you seek from taking communion? Just a little, little pithy saying, said bad aims will spoil good actions. Right? Bad motivations will spoil good actions. There's this neat account in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 18 through 20. And um, Hezekiah is trying to help his people because they keep messing up. And, and he pleads with God for them. Verse 18 says, For a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, otherwise than prescribed. Well, Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. Verse 20 says, So the Lord heard Hezekiah, and he healed the people. We need to come with a sincere heart. We need to come with a humble heart. Man, if nothing else, Christ's example of humility Isaiah 57, 15 tells us that, 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 that God will meet with and revive a humble heart. We need to come with a heavenly heart. It's called communion. It, it's a sharing of fellowship with, with our Lord and Savior. We need to come with a believing heart. Christ gave it to whom? He gave it to His apostles. One person said, you come faithless, depart fruitless. We need to come 
with believing hearts, with faithful hearts. We need to come with loving hearts. 1 John 3.15 says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Another one put it this way. It says, He who comes to the Lord's table in hatred, now get this, he who comes to the Lord's table in hatred, this is strong language, is a Judas to Christ and a Cain to his brother. What benefit can he receive at the sacrament whose heart is poisoned with malice? Paul would say it this way, did, did you thus learn Christ? Did, did you get that from me? No, you didn't get that from me. He says, Christ puts out the fire of contention. He kindles the fire of love and fellowship within us. We need to come with loving hearts. We need to come with praying hearts. 1 Timothy 4.5 tells us that every ordinance and every creature is sanctified by prayer. So we, we should pray that God would make the sacrament not only a, a sign to represent, but also an instrument to convey Christ to us. And finally, we should come with self-denying hearts. That is simply striving to be like the one we remember, striving to be like Christ. Philippians 2, 5, we know this passage. But it says, have this attitude, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in whom? Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, we know that as the kenosis, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We need to come to the Lord's Supper with self-denying hearts. And you see, this, this is what it means to remember. Right? This is what it means to remember. It's not just with right actions but with right attitude, with the right internal posture, for lack of a better term. That's how we remember. And yes, we, we remember the brow with its thorny crown. And we remember the blood from his hands and his feet and his sides. We have to remember those things. We remember the burden of sin, and we remember the burial. We remember the bitterness. Lamentations 3.19 talks about, remember my affliction, my worn my wandering, the, you know, the wormwood and the gall, or the wormwood and the bitterness. But we also remember. We also remember the, the, the blow to, to death and the grave. And, and we rejoice, or we should rejoice, in the bold access that we have to the Heavenly Father. And we should rejoice in the boon of being called sons and daughters of God. And, and so we remember and we rejoice in the many benefits that we receive from His death, burial, and resurrection. And as Paul writes, we boast in that only. Galatians 6.14 says, But may it never be that I would boast except, except. And did Paul have reason to boast? Yeah. I mean, Paul started churches and made converts and, and wrote, you know, Scripture and, and did great things for the cause of Christ. If anyone had any kind of excuse to boast, Paul could have. He says, but I don't want to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been 
crucified to me and I to the world. So we have to remember Christ's death as to what? Be conformed to his death. Galatians 2.20, we're going to close with this, says, I have, we know this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He gave himself up for me. That's what we remember. That's what we rejoice in. And that should be our aim, is is to be conformed to what we're remembering and what we're rejoicing in, to be conformed to his death, to live in faith in him. And to give ourselves humbly, lovingly, seriously, to give ourselves to Him. So I pray we could do that this morning as we approach our time of the Lord's Supper. And I pray we could have that mind in us every week when we approach the Lord's Supper. It is a privilege. It is a privilege we get to observe that. And it is a It is a praise we get to observe that. Because, yes, of the past, but also because of the promise that's in front of us. Let's have this mind also that was in our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning for for making things new. Lord, you made things new that night with the disciples in in that room observing that meal. And Lord, you you make things new for us every day. And Father, may, may we be grateful for that and humbled by that. Lord, I would ask that you would work mightily within us. And Father, I would pray that we could come to our time of of communion with right understanding and, and right hearts as much as it depends on us. Father, thank you Lord, we love you, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.